Rather than give a full Dharma talk this evening, I thought to say a few things that have come to mind and then open it up for questions and discussion and to give the closing talk about bringing practice back into the world tomorrow morning after the first sitting. It seems to me that as the Dharma comes to the West, we have a unique challenge. Because for the first time, the real interest and commitment, at least for this time period, is not to be found within the context of a monastic tradition, as it has been in Asian cultures. It's been the monasteries which have really held and preserved the teachings. And at least for now, that doesn't seem to be the case in the West. But it's really people leading household lives, lives in the world, who are making a commitment to Dharma practice, to understanding. And it's a tremendous challenge because it's hard enough in a monastery to do it in the middle of you know, a busy life in work, in relationships, in family. How is it possible to maintain the connection to practice and work with the quality of penetrating into the depths of the nature of the mind, to really work with our minds in a careful and systematic and penetrating way so that our understanding continues to deepen and to unfold in the middle of, in the middle of our worldly daily activities. It's a crucial question for all of us because if practice, if you, if you think of practice in a deep way as being limited to the time you come to IMS or to a retreat, it's not enough. Unless, like a few of you, you happen to move in here. (laughs) And there are some cases. So what to do? There's one story, I don't know whether Alan mentioned it in one of the talks I wasn't present for, but even if he did, it's worth repeating since it's just essential Dharma. And it points to a way of living in the world Profoundly. It's the story of somebody going to see the Buddha, making a long journey across India, and very insistent upon the teachings. Even though the Buddha was out in the village collecting alms food, this person was determined, while the Buddha was, was holding his bowl, please teach me. So the Buddha had to give just the gist of the Dharma. It wasn't an appropriate time for a long discourse. So what the Buddha told this man, when this person heard these teachings also, he heard the teachings, which is just a short verse, and he got enlightened. So listen carefully. (laughs) Because it's amazingly simple And it goes just to the center of what practice and understanding is about. But the Buddha told this person, he said, you must practice like this. In the scene that is seen with the eyes, 
there is just what is seen. And in the heard, there is just what is heard. And in the sensed, that is smell and taste and sensed in the body, there is just what is sensed. And in the thought, there is just what is thought. There is just what there is in each moment. In the seen, just the seen. And in the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. And in the thought, just the thought. Okay, so what do you see? Say again, please. Light? That. The eye doesn't see that. Not even close. <laughs> In the scene, just the scene. What is seen? This color in form. It's hard not to see hand, isn't it? And we're trained very well to see hand. And yet we don't see hand. We see a certain color and a certain form in light and shadow. What do we hear? Okay, we don't hear bell. In the scene, just the scene. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sense. You're sitting. Is there a pain in your knee? <laughs> there isn't. You may think there's a pain in the knee. That is, have that thought. In the sense, there is just the sense. It's burning, it's throbbing, it's pressure, it's pulling, it's stabbing, it's whatever. Oh, my knee hurts. Your knee doesn't hurt. In the sensed, in the sensation, there is just what is sensed. But with all of these things, and these are just simple examples, seeing, hearing, sensing, what we do is make up a whole story. Right? We make up the story of Joseph's hand, and why is Joseph holding his hand up, or hearing the bell, and oh boy, the bell's ring, and the sitting's over, and now I can stretch. All of that's the story around each moment's experience. And mostly we live in this storyland. Our challenge in terms of Dharma practice, whether it's here on retreat or outside in work, family, our challenge is to stay open and trusting and present in each moment's experience. In the scene, there is just the scene. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. And in the thought, just the thought. There's nothing wrong with thought. You know, sometimes people get the misunderstanding, misunderstand from practice that thought is bad. Thought isn't bad, thought is thought. It gets a little confusing when we take the thought to be the experience. That's when confusion arises, that's when we get lost in our thought. And so when it's necessary to think or to plan or to remember, that's all fine. As long as we remember that what's happening is thinking. 
I'm sure you've had the experience many, many times of sitting or walking and being lost in a fantasy and having the whole emotional charge come from the situation of the fantasy and then somewhere down the road waking up from it. It feels a little silly, doesn't it? You know, we get so involved and so caught up. And then it's like, you know, in the moment when we finally become mindful, we realize, ah, oh, that was just, that was just thought. What we have to do is pay this kind of careful attention, not only on retreat, not only being here, but in our lives, throughout our daily activities. And increasingly, we develop the ability to settle back into the moment, trusting the moment, surrendering to it. Now, as you're sitting, can you feel the touch sensation just of sitting? It's simple. Just kind of the pressure or the vibration. Is there any problem? Does anybody still have a problem? (laughs) Good, this retreat was a success. (laughs) Let's leave now. (laughs) In the moment, in the moment's direct experience, there's no problem. But when we start thinking and start making up our story, then there are problems. And so somehow, to practice remembering, coming back to the moment. And we forget a lot. We forget whether we're here on retreat. We'll certainly forget outside of the retreat. Somehow it's reminding ourselves that it's simple. It's not complicated. It's as simple as feeling these sensations as simple as hearing a sound, or seeing a sight, or thinking a thought. Here's one other thing that I'd like to mention briefly. is that the practice of Dharma has to do with deepening our understanding. Deepening the understanding of the nature of mind, the nature of experience, the nature of suffering, the nature of freedom. And so our challenge is to take the times of difficulty that we have in our lives to take those times and look deeply into what it is that's going on what's happening that's creating that difficulty or creating that suffering where is the attachment where is the resistance I'll just share with you one story which may be an example of what I mean in this context. I was teaching one retreat uh, someplace in the West Coast. And Just after one of the talks, somebody raises their hand and said in that electric quality of voice, you know, of a mind right at the edge, 
what is freedom? <laughs> and it's like the whole room got... It was said with much more intensity than that, but that kind of... And my heart starts, <laughs> you know, what am I going to do? <laughs> and so I just kind of said something or other. And then the next day or another, you know, day or two passes and this person again stops me on the path and just in a very, you know, eyeball to eyeball way, he says, I think you should cook and I should teach. <laughs> And again, I knew that was a sign. He might have been able to teach, but... (laughs) (laughs) And then a few days later, in in the middle of a sitting, everybody's sitting very quietly, and I see him getting up, you know, and walking to the front of the room. (laughs) And again, in all this time, I was really uneasy, you know. <laughs> I didn't know. Here there were these 80 yogis sitting, and as you know, you know, you get very quiet and very sensitive, and there was just this energy <laughs> to be with. But it was really interesting for me to look and see why I was uneasy. What was it that made that difficult? It really had nothing to do with him whatsoever, and in fact, it was a wonderful teaching. What was it that I was close to? Or what was I resisting? Or what wasn't I open to? And what was I afraid of? And that's the kind of investigation, I mean, when we feel uneasy, or when we're suffering, or when there's discomfort, or fear, that's an interesting time to look because it brings us right to the edge of what we're willing to be with, what we feel okay with, what we're willing to accept. You know, something a little outside of our limitation and we have difficulty with it. Dharma practice means opening to the full range of experience. And we do it on retreat a lot. You know, you come and at first you can sit with so much pain and then it just gets too much. We can't deal with it. What's amazing is that as we sit and practice and the mind grows stronger, what in the beginning felt like too much, by the end feels quite reasonable. It's easy to be with that. The mind doesn't struggle. We do the same psychologically. We come to some psychological states that we just can't be with comfortably or can't accept. So we pull back and get tense and contracted. That's the time to arouse the investigation, to arouse the mindfulness, because there's a possibility there of a very profound opening. We've been brought by some set of circumstances to our boundaries, to our edge. It's like what people go to Sashin for, you know, hit, 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 hit until you get right to the edge. And right there is where you can open. Life situations are continually providing us with those experiences. So it's really to appreciate the difficulties that we experience in our lives as being times of the best teachings. But what it takes is not a looking outward or a blaming or a searching for causes outside of ourselves, but a turning back inward to see what it is in our own minds that's keeping us from opening to that particular situation. So the simplicity of coming back to the moment and the willingness to look, the willingness to investigate. 
with the commitment to this, I think it's very possible to make our lives, not only on retreat, but our lives in the world, a time of very deep and fruitful practice. Do you have any questions that you'd like to discuss? Where's the man going? Well, (laughs) I headed him off (laughs) and I led him out the door and we had a little chat. (laughs) Yes. Jack's hand. (laughs) (laughs) When mindfulness is there, it's color and form and shape. Basically, it's simply not thinking. I mean, it's not so profound. It's just distinguishing between what is seen and then the word which we put on top of it. You know, so it's two quite distinct processes, although the word gets put on pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. A good way to do it, it would be an interesting experiment, I think, for you. And you've probably had the experience already if you look at something long enough, make it a seeing meditation. Take some object. It could be anything. A stone, a a twig, a tree. And just look. So instead of being with the breath, you're being with that sight. You will see that after a while, the idea of stone or tree or twig drops away. And that all there is, directly in your experience, is the color and shadow. It's either that or senility. (laughs) It's true. You know, actually you hear a word over and over and over again. Or thinking it and it's the same thing happens. You know, when you're very mindful, really mindful in this very concentrated way, If you look at a book, all you're going to see is black on white. So, obviously, what I'm saying is that it's not to throw out the conceptual level of mind, because that's a level of mind that's essential to our being in the world. And it's fine. We can use it skillfully. The problem is that we've taken that conceptual level to be the actual reality, and we live our lives in it instead of using it when it's appropriate and helpful, and then residing in the place of silence. You talked several times about an object arising, and then the knowing that the object has arisen. Can that knowing be directly experienced other than... Can you say something about that? How is that experienced? I'm going to try and condense a talk into about two minutes. In each moment of experience, there's consciousness in the object. Consciousness means the knowing. So there's knowing of a sight, knowing of a sound, of a smell, of a taste, of a thought, 
So what we are is this pairwise progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. That's what we are. That's that's what life is. It's this progression of consciousness and object arising and passing in each moment. But there's something else that arises and passes away along with the consciousness and object. And that is a whole group of mental factors in different combinations which determine how the consciousness relates to the object. So, for example, greed may arise in a particular in a particular moment. So consciousness sticks. That's the nature of greed. Or aversion may arise in a particular moment as the nature to condemn. Mindfulness may arise in a particular moment. Mindfulness has the nature to notice what the object is. Okay. If mindfulness happens to arise by chance in, <laughs> in this pair of knowing an object, the mindfulness can note, can be aware of the object or of the knowing of the object. Consciousness, the knowing, can be the object of mindfulness too. But it's very subtle because consciousness is not a very tangible object. It, it would be somewhat analogous to saying, become aware of the space in this room. You know, if you look too hard, you look right through it to the objects. To be aware of the space, you have to get very soft and receptive. Not, not reaching out to anything, just settle back and open to the experience of it because it can be experienced even though you can't point to it. In the same way, when the mind is very soft and receptive and perceptive, and when the perception is, is refined and delicate, we can be aware of the knowing arising with each object. Yes, it, yeah. It's a, in the course of the meditation practice, there's one stage when it becomes very clear. When, when the mindfulness of the knowing and the object, both, is a very clear and distinct experience. And that's very illuminating in letting go of the sense of some, some permanent self. Because one of the last things we identify with is the observer or the witness. Even when we see everything changing, there's still a sense of someone observing things. But when there's the experience that the knowing, that the consciousness is itself, just, just this process, you know, arising and passing in each moment. So it, it's a very illuminating time. Is, is the feeling quality irrespective of the mind states? Elaborate a little bit. It is feeling. I'm not sure I know what you mean by irrespective. Feeling is a common mental factor, which means that it arises in every moment of experience. Right? Every moment has the quality of it being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. But it doesn't arise alone. It arises in combination with other mental factors also. Okay, I have to tell you with this that (laughs) I'm just at the limit of what I know (laughs) in terms of this kind of Abhidhamma analysis of mind moments of consciousness. You know, there's a book in the Pali Canon, it's called The Book of Relations, which is a very complex and precise analysis of how each mind moment is conditioned, right? the different conditioning factors for each mind moment. Basically, all I know about it is the title. <laughs> so, it's very... <laughs> Munindra is the man for you if you want to pursue it.
is the, know, is the knower of the experience. Well, let's say the knowing. The knowing of, of the experience, but um, is there ever a point, or what would you think of, that there, the knower becomes the, know, the knowing of the experience as well as the observation of the experience? But, but the <coughs> observer becomes the knower of the experience as well as the knowing of the experience is so the experience and the knowing of it is observed right. um, how okay that's the function of the factor of mindfulness in other words mindfulness has the function of noticing and it can notice this process of knowing an object It's the noticing. Is, is, is the noticing of the experience or the noticing of the knowing? Both. The both. It can be both. And that's what happens as the mind gets more quiet. In the beginning, the mindfulness is really focusing pretty much on the object, on the sound, on the sight, on the thought. But as the awareness, as the mindfulness gets stronger, it begins to notice that along with the object, is the knowing of the object. Right? So that's where the intending part helps, helps you to be aware of the noticing, of the knowing. That when he's, when just prior to... Yeah, it, yeah, because then you're aware of the object or the experience from the very beginning, from the very moment of it arising. They are one in the sense that okay, they're one in two senses, <laughs> and maybe more. <laughs> they're one in the sense that they're inseparable. The knowing and the object. This is air vibrating and hitting this. There's the consciousness, there's the knowing of the sound. The sound and the knowing of the sound. They're inseparable. And so in that sense, they're one. They're distinguishable. And that's what, when the mind gets very precisely refined, you can distinguish the two aspects of the one experience. Right? But you can't separate. The, the, the knowing and the object arise together. You can't, you can't pull them apart. Right? It's becoming one in another sense. And this is... I don't know, maybe... I feel like it's going to be a little hard to explain, but... Okay, and I do this, and you become totally mindful. All of your attention is on seeing. What you are in that moment is this. Do you follow? <laughs> in each moment, we are the experience. And that becomes clear when we realize that there's no one behind it who's having it. So that's where we usually separate ourselves out from experience. We have this sense that experience refers back to someone, that someone is hearing, and someone is seeing, and someone is thinking. But that's wrong view, that's, that's ignorance. Because actually what's happening, what we are is a sequence of moments of seeing and hearing. We are the hearing in that moment. We are the seeing in that moment. And so in that there's no duality. (laughs) There is simply 
seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. But it's going so quick. It's like, you know, whirling the firebrand around and we see a circle. There's no circle. That's, that's the illusion. Right? What we are, Joseph, life, you know, all of you, is simply a very fast progression of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. But it's happening so quickly that it creates this picture. Joseph and everybody else. And we relate to the picture. Because our perception, until we train it, is not seeing it. It's just made up of these moments of discrete experience. You're not saying that perception is the only aspect of our being, are you? No, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) I might have. (laughs) There's more than just seeing. When you're you're observing an object and you're seeing, there's also cognition and there's also a lot of other aspects of one's being that are going on simultaneously. Right, but in that particular moment, the consciousness and all the mental factors have this as their object. Right, so it's it's true. That it's if you calm down that one thing, but life doesn't. And that's the difference. That's a challenge to me in going out into the world. Is that you're just not sitting on your sofa and feeling the content. You're full relationship with everything. Well. And then there's a totality. There's a like Alan was talking yesterday about zoom lens of mindfulness and spaciousness of awareness. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. (laughs) But you have to be real careful that what we take to be relating to the fullness (coughs) is actually relating let's see what we take to be relating to the fullness, what that often is, is relating to a lot of concepts. But there is a fullness. There is a fullness. If we look at that correctly, we're really living totally. All right. How to look at it correctly. Right. So that the challenge in going out and practicing mindfulness to me in the world is that these complicated lives which are just not sitting, just not... Okay, are you ever doing anything beside seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking? So it's not so complicated. <laughs> except, except when we get lost in our thoughts about experience. That's when it gets complicated because we write these very complicated scripts. And then we forget that it's a script. It's just like that little Zen story I read about, you know, the person painting the tiger and then getting frightened. The challenge is the challenge is to stay present in the simplicity of the moment and let then our actions and our responses and our relationships come out of that awareness. And it's possible to do the whole dance. But it's quite a different story if we're lost in the story about it or we're doing the dance, feeling the sensation of the ground under our feet. Right? I mean, I have a sense it's like a wheel turning on the ground. Is there a space between, you know, the points as they go around and touch the ground? I don't know. If you find out, let me know. <laughs> I just uh, heard a simile 
And the what? There is a space, and this is the great space, when this arising and passing of phenomena what keeps it going, that's the wheel of samsara. The wheel of samsara is this continual arising and passing away of phenomena. What keeps it going is the force of ignorance and craving. That's the energy which is fueling it. So when we bring our mind to a place of balance, where we're not craving or wanting or reaching out, the possibility is there to experience that which is when this process stops. You know, one image that... I used it as an analogy, and and it may be that the analogy at a certain point breaks down. Uh, But my sense is that well, take everybody, take a look. Uh, Actually, that that's a good koan to keep. You know, how do we experience space? <laughs> is, that, is that one of the great questions? <laughs> Thank you. When you say steering or hearing, etc., that's fairly clear that there is the knowing in different areas. Can you actually point to anything as being consciousness outside the conceptual idea of it being consciousness knowing an object? I can never find consciousness beyond the idea that there is that particular experience. So we say that's consciousness knowing that, and that's consciousness knowing that. It drops from the conceptual level to to an experience of it. Yes, so I can understand that there's the experience right. thing, like the sea, where it's just colour, or sound, where it's just sound, or sensation. No, there's the experience of the consciousness. <coughs> there's the experience of the knowing arising with that. That's quite distinct when the mind is going through that particular you know, level of investigation. It's, it's Yeah. In in the, the traditional text, it's described as the the insight into nama rupa. Na, nama means mind, and rupa is physical physical elements. And at a certain level of practice, that there's a very clear insight into nama rupa, the knowing and the object of knowing. And it's a very profound insight because it's really the it's really a, um, the beginning of a deep understanding of selflessness, because we see that all there is is this nama rupa arising and passing. You can see this stuff arising and passing. I mean, like, um, in one sense, I have a problem with that. Like, as soon as you get free, your mind's involved with 
No, it's not beyond it because it arises with it. It doesn't arise separate from it. Mindfulness notices the knowing. No, mindfulness is a factor arising with consciousness. Anyway, (laughs) keep exploring. You know. Yeah. <coughs> An old problem uh, that I wrestled with since we've taken on new menace at this retreat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that is that as we act as a witness and note what we're doing, that we're setting up another self, another persona, perhaps. And <coughs> the new wrinkle in this that bothers me now occurred to me while I was walking once that maybe the reason I get sucked off in a thought without realizing it is that being, feeling that I am this self, which is just step back a little bit, and it's, but it's still a self, watching what I'm doing, that I can have a thought comment on that without noticing it, because that is the noticing. Right. Okay, how, how, would it, how would it be if you switched modes? Okay, we'll just do the experiment now. If you would just hold your hands together. And don't watch the sensation, feel the sensation. Can you feel it? What's the sensation that you feel? Pressure. Okay, pressure. What, what else? Warmth. Okay, just stay with the stay just with the feeling of it. Getting very close, not watching it from a distance, but becoming the feeling, becoming that sensation. In becoming the sensation, feeling it closely. Where's the I and where's the self? Maybe. <laughs> okay. Was the, in doing this was there a problem? Okay. For in the next, you know, in the next walking and sitting, see what happens if you drop the noting for a while, and really drop into the feeling, becoming, becoming the feeling, becoming the sensation, because then there's not that sense of separation. No, I understand exactly. Right. No, no, I I understand exactly. Yep, perfect sense. And that's your edge. That was like my experience with this guy's energy. You know, it was a certain situation, I didn't like it. And I kind of, you know, and I pulled away from it. I mean, I think I'm doing something to block myself from having anything like that. Right. So what you have to do is recognize 
you know, when it's, when that's beginning to happen and recognizing your pattern of withdrawal from it, reminding yourself, okay, soften, just be allowing, soften, soften, soften. And as you remind yourself of that, slowly you gain the stability of mind to stay with it instead of pulling back from it. And it is, sometimes it gets really difficult because it's scary and fearful and frightening and it's really moving into an unknown space. It's fine. You know, and working with somebody at that time can be helpful just as a way of encouragement to continue to stay with it. But it takes your own remembering, okay, just let me be allowing for this. And you'll, you'll go through it. It's true. You'll have another chance. And another one, and another one, and another one. So you're saying just keep hanging with it. There's nothing I should maybe try to do other than just... No. To hang in there softly, with a real allowing, accepting quality. And you'll see. I mean, you'll just... It's really a surrender. At that time, you could, you could retake the refuge in the Dharma, which is really... Taking refuge in the Dharma means surrendering to the truth, surrendering to the truth of each moment's experience. So you make a willing, a willing surrender. And yet, you definitely have to be willing to die. Are you? <laughs> okay, maybe one more question if anybody has. As you reflect on your own deepening of practice and unfolding, what for you would, would be some of the more inspiring uh, moments in your practice? I'm such a Dharma Bhakti, you know, that it's like people have all different forms of uh, devotion or inspiration, and some have work, work in a, mm, with very distinct forms. That's how that quality of devotion comes out. My mind doesn't work like that so much, but it, it works with a sense of tremendous a devotion to the Dharma, right? to that, to the understanding of what's going on, and so the sitting itself just always brings. If we can bring that quality of interest, we deserve that interest. You know, we're we're interesting. Not not the story, but you know what this what this is, what this life process, this life experience is. It's worthy of our interest. It's worthy of our investigation. And when we bring that quality of interest, the practice itself becomes very inspiring. But what happens is that people put certain experiences outside of the practice. The pain in the knee is not interesting. You know, the anger is not interesting. The boredom is not interesting. Well, <laughs> you know, what do you want? <laughs> there has to be the sense of opening to every part of ourselves. And it includes everything. It includes the pain and the the boredom and the restlessness and the heavy emotions and the stillness and the calm and the insight. You know, just in reference to that, I'd been sitting for a long time with this incredible, deep kind of energy tension. Just for like, just the deepest energy awareness right, revolved around that. And I was speaking about this to 
This woman, Deepama, who I think I mentioned in one of the talks, this extraordinary, extraordinary teacher in person. And I said, you know, why do I, why is this still going on? And her response was, it was something like, oh, it's a deepening understanding of yourself. <laughs> For her, that that's what was happening. And that was as worthy of understanding and experiencing as anything else. Right? But I had been watching uh, a practice in order for it to go away. So it really takes that total commitment to the entire range of what we experience. Then the practice gets very inspiring. And that's what's important to remember as you leave the retreat, you know, and go back, because our life is not fragmented, it's not split. Okay, now you're here, and now you're doing your practice, and you leave here, and it's something else. Were you able to maintain a quality of awareness this afternoon in the talking? A little bit? That's no different than this. You know, our life doesn't stop when we get up from, from the sitting and get involved in activity. It's the same process of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, going on. Our challenge is to stay aware equally as we dance through the different forms that it takes. Sometimes it's sitting, and sometimes it's walking, and sometimes it's talking, and sometimes it's driving, and whatever we're doing. So, good luck. (laughs) Okay. Um, It's 8.15 now. Why don't we... um, have walking for 45 minutes and come back and sit for about half an hour, 40 minutes. Please uh, keep the silence until after the um, closing talk tomorrow. Um, And then again, for those of you who are staying through lunch, we'd like to keep the dining room silent. Uh, at mealtime, because there are quite a few people who have been here and are staying on and practicing. So it'll be silence through breakfast and through the morning closing. Then we'll break the silence and they'll be talking. At lunchtime in the dining room, please, uh, if you stay, please resume the silence. Yeah. What's tomorrow's schedule? Tomorrow's schedule is the same in the morning. There'll be the 8 o'clock sitting and then sort of a closing talk uh, at about 9 o'clock. Talk and questions and some metta practice. And then by 10, 10 10.15, we'll end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.